Well, a couple of weeks ago, our family took a quick trip over fall break down to Kentucky. Our, our girls were thrilled to visit the Kentucky Horse Park. That was kind of the destination. There, there you see a picture of them. They're actually petting an American Mustang there. It was pretty, pretty fun for them to, to go and see all these different kinds of horses. Uh, but, but what ended up happening along the way is that in our drive to Lexington, where the horse park is at, we ended up driving late at night on roads that I, I was not familiar with. And if you've ever done that, you know it can be fairly daunting. You just, you're not quite sure. You can't see very well. What, what I didn't expect on this particular late night drive is that late at night, we'd be more or less enveloped by semis with those concrete barriers about three inches from the edge of the road. And so I already don't know where I'm going. It's hard to see. There's, you know, you're boxed in by these trucks on all sides and then the concrete barrier on the other side. And, uh, and what was worse was this construction area that seemed to go the entire trip. I guess it was fairly new because the on-ramps and the off-ramps and the exits were, they were really poorly marked and some of them weren't marked at all. And so it was just like, I'm usually not a stressed driver. I'm usually pretty relaxed and that's just, how we kind of roll in the cookhouse. Uh, but this was a super stressful drive. I'm like, this is, this is not good. I'm a little twitchy here, and I'm, I'm just generally irritable, and this is not a good situation. And like, I, even we're driving, I told Emily, I said, man, I wish we would have scheduled this differently. Like, I wish we could be driving during the day and see this a little bit better. Uh, but as you can see, we're, we're back here. We made it to the park. You saw the picture. We had a great time. And you know, rode off into the sunset and everybody lived happily ever after or something like that. It ended up being a really good time. We were glad to be there and, and, and that was fun. Um, but it was stressful for us not being able to see where we were going, not quite understanding what that looked like, right? And, and maybe you've been in a spot like that and you can relate to it. I want you to hold that thought of a drive where you can't see where you're going. Hold that in one part of your brain and let's jump over to Genesis 23 for, for just a second. Because on first glance, it may not be obvious to us why this chapter's here. There's no explicit mention of God except kind of that light reference, Abraham was a prince of God. Maybe that just means he was a mighty prince, but it's not like giving us this, this name of God that tells us something powerful about him, right? It's, there's re no real mention of God's covenants, or his promises, like what, what, what's going on here? Why does this chapter matter so much to us? In fact, I read one commentator this week that said, there's no real reason for this chapter except for simple biographical interests. Just kind of interesting tidbits on Abraham and Sarah's Wikipedia page or something like that. And I'm here to tell you that that commentator was wrong. He, he was wrong, and, and this story isn't random. It's strategically placed here to teach us about the life of faith. So I've titled the sermon, The Cave of Faith. It's about living beyond what we can see, and, and just like I couldn't see a whole lot on the road last week, this story tells us about our life when it's difficult to see what's next. It's scary sometimes, you feel a little boxed in, you, you definitely wish it was different than that, but you've got to trust that God is there and he's with you and he's seeing what's next and you gotta follow his path. This chapter, the odd tale of the cave is all about the life of faith. So if you were to, to summarize it in, in a sentence, you might say this, because life is short and God's plans are long, we must live for what we cannot see. Because life is short 
And God's plans are long. They go way past our life. We must live for what we cannot see. That's what this passage, this chapter in Genesis is meant to tell us. So we have three points. We're going to talk about remembering the land, remembering your death, talks about Sarah's death, and then finally what it means to live as a sojourner. So we'll start with the first one, remember the land. Now, is anybody here from Cleveland by any chance? You say Cleveland, people start trying to remember the land. Now, that's not the land we're talking about, okay? Um, and it, the phrase, the land, may not immediately strike you as significant, but it does show up five times in chapter 23. So you see a repetition there is meant to tell us, hey, this, this is actually pretty important. So the phrase, the land of Canaan, is in verse 2 and in verse 19. The phrase, the people of the land, shows up in verse 7 and verse 12 and verse 13. So this idea of the land is actually a pretty big theme throughout the book of Genesis. And it's a theme that I've not actually touched on a whole lot in this sermon series so far. We've lightly hit it at various points, uh, but it's important today that we see it. We, we've looked at other points so far, right? We've talked about Abraham being a blessing, talked about that a bunch. We've talked about Abraham becoming a nation, talked about that a bunch. We talked about Abraham's offspring, we talked about that a bunch. But if you go back to Genesis 12, the beginning promises God makes to Abraham, there's kind of four basic ones that Abraham will have uh, an offspring, there'll be a blessing, he'll be a nation, and he'll have this land, the land. And so you can't really sit through a sermon series on the book of Genesis without having an idea of tracing the, the land as this theme throughout. And so today we're going to talk a little bit more about that, and we'll, we'll zoom out a touch to see it, and then zoom back in to chapter 23. But to, to sort of frame that in, uh, there's one quote that's really short I want to share with you to help us see that. It's how Graham Goldsworthy, a Bible commentator, would talk about the kingdom of God. Here's what he says. The essence of the kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what we're looking for. And so thus far in the series, you've seen a lot about God's people and a lot about them being under God's rule. And the idea of the land is it's in God's place. That's what we're sort of going to see here. And it actually starts before the life of Abraham, this idea of God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? God's people in God's perfect paradise place under his rule, except people rebelled, they sinned, they chose to go their own way, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and in a sense, the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is tracking their journey back to the land where God's people could be in God's place under God's rule. And so Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, you see on the screen, God makes this promise to Abram. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. I'll bring you back to my place where you, my people, can live under my rule. And as you may know, the book of Genesis concludes with God's people not in the land. They're in Egypt. Shortly thereafter, Moses would lead God's people out of Egypt, but he wouldn't be allowed to go into the land because he had sinned. So as soon as Moses dies, the very next thing we see, the beginning of the book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 2, again on the screen, you'll see this. Moses, my servant is dead, now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, the people of Israel. 
God's been on this journey to take his people back to this place where they will rightly live under his rule. So the people enter the land as Joshua leads them. And Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down, right? And they're on their way back into the land. But what happens when they get to the land? They reject God's kingship. No, 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 we don't need you as a king. We want a king we can see, right? And so God's people make it to God's place, but then they reject God's rule. And as a result of rejecting God's rule, they're again ejected from the land. And this is kind of the the main part of the Old Testament is walking through what we call exile. They've been taken out of the land. And all throughout, a lot of these prophets, the major and the minor prophets, are groaning for this time to be back in the land. They see that it's bad to be separated from God's rule and God's place. They say, we want to be your people. We want to be in your place and we want to be under your rule. So the book of Jeremiah has a couple of these just kind of quick excerpts I can can pull out and show you. Chapter 22, verse 29, you read, Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. They're longing to be back in God's place as God's people under his rule. Or chapter 23 and verse 10, For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns. So there's this larger theme as we're sort of kind of marching through the Old Testament of God's people wanting to be back in God's place under his rule. And eventually God will bring his people back into the land on the basis of his grace, not on the basis of their goodness. And the book of Ezekiel sort of traces their exile and at the very end we get to good news of returning to the land. You'll notice that he begins to expand this people of God to include anyone who would, by faith, trust in Jesus, not merely to national Israel. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 21, here's what we read. So you shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Okay, so God is taking them back to the land. And this, this is obviously reaches its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who came, paid the penalty for our sins, and will one day return as a conquering king to rule on this physical earth for all eternity, where God's people will finally live in God's place under God's rule. And we look forward to that, amen? Well, that'll be a good day, when the true king is here on the throne with us, and ruling over it, and As Habakkuk 2, the prophet looks forward to and longs for, he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everywhere will be covered with that. So we'll live forever on this earth under God's reign. That is to say that heaven isn't some ethereal outer space reality. You read Revelation, it's a new heaven, a new earth comes down. It's been purified by fire. There's all sorts of implications. You start to think about what it means to live on the earth forever, how we care for the earth now, how we seek to be good stewards of the earth. I think sometimes in Christian theology, we we underemphasize that because we have a connotation of some left-wing thing that's problematic, and we miss that God has called us to take care of this earth that he's given to us. If you're interested in exploring more there, Francis Schaeffer has a short little book called Pollution and the Death of Man, 
uh, that's kind of a primer on Christian theology, on caring for the, the, the earth. It's, it's a good little book. Um, but I told you we were going to zoom out and then zoom back in. So if I just took you the wide-angle view of the land, remember the land. We were God's people, God's place, God's rule. We were there, got kicked out, and here's the journey of God's tracing. I'm going to take you back to the land. Now let's zoom back into chapter 23, because with that whole backstory, what happens here in 23 makes a little bit more sense. All right, let's look at verse 4 and pick up right there. I'm actually going to read through verse 9. It's a little longer than I usually read, but you'll see why in a second. Starting in verse 4, Abraham says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will hold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. And it's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now, you see they're kind of having these, these pleasantries in conversation, right? It's like, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, I'll take the tab at the restaurant. No, you take the tab at the restaurant. I'll bow down to you. And, you know, it gets a little lost in what exactly is going on with cultural norms that, you know, they would have understood and for us maybe is a little confusing. Like, okay, what's going on here? Here's what Abraham wants to, to make really clear in what he says to the Hittites, and it's important that we see in this as well. He says, I want to buy this land. I don't want to just borrow your land. I want to buy the land. It's like the country artist Jordan Davis. I want to buy dirt. It's a good thing to do. Okay, that, that's kind of what he's saying. If you know that song, now you're singing it. If not, you're lost, so we'll keep going. But there's, um, there, there's a, a phrase that I want to use here. It's three words that would be good for you to write down. It's a public legal transaction. That's what Abraham wants to have. He wants to have a public legal transaction transaction so that everyone will know for certain that he has purchased this land and it now belongs to him. He's not merely borrowing someone's land. Now, to see that most clearly, let's look at verse 16. And there's three phrases in verse 16 that talk about this public legal transaction and, and why that matters. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Okay, three phrases there that say public legal transaction. One, in the hearing of the Hittites. This was, I don't know if it was in like the, the county courthouse or in the town square or in the gates, but it, it was publicly done. It was recorded. We know this was a real transaction. This belongs to Abraham now. The amount required by Ephron, 400 shekels of silver. So we, we wrote it down. Here's the price that we paid. And then the last phrase, according to the weights current among the merchants. So I, we don't know if there were maybe different kinds of weights being used, but this was like an official deal. We went to the, to the government zone to get this done. This wasn't a sort of handshake deal under the table, cash-only transaction. This was, this was official, public, legal transaction. Now Abraham owns the land. 
Some people have actually tried to object, though, and, and refute this story and say it's not actually true because they said, well, the Hittites, they didn't live in this region. So the Bible's clearly false. And, uh, and like the long list of objections to the truth of the Bible, as we've continued to dig on them and find what recent archaeology has uncovered is that where we thought the Hittites didn't live here for a while, and the Bible was kind of the only source saying that, there's been recent archaeology that shows Hittite pottery, seals, and jewelry in this region from this time frame. So you could continue to say, like, ah, oh, the Bible's not true. No, it is. And sometimes, like in this case, we found the archaeological dig that says, yes, they were there, and, and sometimes we haven't found that dig yet, but you can have confidence in the word of God. We actually get a bit of an echo here in this chapter, back to Genesis 14. If you were with us for that sermon, you may remember, or you may not, that uh, Abraham conquered some kings, and they wanted to give him gifts. And he said, no, I'm not going to take your gifts, because I want it to be clear that God is the one who has blessed me, and you're not the one that's the source of the blessing. It's a little bit similar here where he says, no, I'm not going to borrow your field as if you're my provider. I'm going to use the money God has given me. I'm going to purchase it so that we know that God is the one who's the source of all my provision. So kind of a similar piece, a response of faith from Abraham there. And what he's doing in all of this, by purchasing the land, he's saying, I'm remembering God has promised me this land. I'm remembering the land. I need to purchase it. Even if I can only get a cave, only a little, I'm going to start getting a little bit of it. And this becomes an ancestral burial ground for his people so that now they will be tied back to the land of Canaan that's been promised them. Now, we'll get to specific application of this kind of into our third point, so don't try and race ahead too far on that yet. But at this point, just recognize that purchasing this cave was a great act of faith for Abraham, saying, I'm gonna buy this thing, and I trust that long after I'm gone, God's going to use my investment of faith to accomplish his purposes that he's promised. That's what I want you to see in remember the land there. Let's go to the second point. Remember your death. Remember your death. Now, certainly, it's not the, the warmest and fuzziest of topics to bring up. right? That, that, that's not right at the top of the list of the, the funnest things we want to say on a Sunday morning. But it is important that we recognize, as God is revealing himself to us throughout the book of Genesis, this is the first death and burial recorded in the Bible. Not the first death, but the first death and burial recorded in the Bible. Sarah is the matriarch of the Israelites. She's the only woman in the entire Bible to have her age of death recorded. So there does seem to be something significant in this passage about remembering the time of our death. You might say to me, Justin, that's a strange phrase, remember your death. I, I'm clearly here. How can I remember? I, I haven't died yet. And what I mean by this, I want you to remember that it's coming and think about what that's going to be like. Remember that your death is certain, that God has ordained the days of your life that each of us have an appointment with death and we can't be late and we can't be early. Job 14 says this quite clearly. As man's days are determined, the number of his months is within you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. You can't be early, you can't be late, you've got an appointment with death that God has ordained. Or maybe Psalm 139 is helpful to think about in this way. We read, your eyes saw my unformed substance 
In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before you were born, God knew the day of your birth, he knew the day of your death. And one of my jobs as your pastor is to help people live and die well. To help you think through and plan for what do you want coming to your mind when you're in hospice. And you've got to live today in view of what you want to happen there, otherwise it won't. You want to be filled with the promises of God? You want to be overflowing with passages of Scripture, with great hymns of the faith. How you live today impacts what happens on that day. Maybe you've known somebody who's lived well, and they've died well. At the end of their life, they're just oozing scripture. It just flows out of them. Guys, that doesn't happen randomly. It doesn't just happen of, oh, they were a great person of faith. No, it came from diligence and effort and committing the word of God to memory, reciting the promises of God. Remember your death so that when you come to the end of your life, as Matthew 25 says, you can hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, I want to hear that. I want you to hear that. But to hear that, we've got to think right now about how we live. Just this past week, one of our, one of our members, Karen Love, passed into eternity. Karen died well. She left a letter for many of our pastors on how she wanted to be remembered at her funeral. She thought ahead, songs to be sung, scripture passages to be read. What a gift. Maybe for you that means considering writing your own personal eulogy. I want to be remembered in this way. It's not just something for, for old people here to remember either. I, I don't mean to be in any way offensive if you have a little more gray on top than you used to, but this is for, for all of us to, to think through. What are the stories? And when I, when I do a funeral, I'll meet with the family. We'll talk about stories from this person's life. What are the stories you want your kids and your grandkids just to naturally go to? This is when mom was most alive. Dad loved this. What's the passion that comes to mind in their life? Is it your vacation spot? Favorite sports team? That one coffee spot that you just love to be at? Or is it knowing Christ and making him known? Remember your death. And parents, if you've got kids that are in high school or college, I want to challenge you to help them remember their death well in this holiday season. Because when you're in high school and college, few things seem less relevant than remembering your death. They're about to be home for a while. You have some time together. Read a book with them. Maybe you've got a passage of scripture that you want to read through regularly. J.D. Greer has a little white book called What Are You Going to Do With Your Life? And it's a great book. If you want something simple, you could buy them and give to them when they get home for the holidays. Read that and help them think bigger about their life and their death. Remind your kids that life is short. God's promises are long. So we must live in light of what we cannot see. And as the, the famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, train up your kids in the way they should go and make sure you go that way yourself. 
because it's easy to have a lot of words on what they ought to be doing without doing it yourself. And so maybe a, a valuable exercise is to say, man, I want to remember my death in this way and invite your kids into some practices as a family where you can do that together and store up God's word in your heart and dwell long on his promises and know these great hymns of the faith. I don't want to assume that everybody here this morning is already a Christian. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, I want you to remember your death as well. But there is a time when you will die. I don't know when it'll be. You don't. God does. But everybody, when they die, will meet Jesus. Some will meet him as their Savior, and it will be glorious. They'll know him. Their sins will be forgiven, and they'll spend eternity in heaven. And others will meet him as a judge. They won't know him. Their sins won't have been forgiven. They'll be condemned to hell. And if you're here listening this morning, I want you to know, I want you to meet Jesus as your savior, not as your judge. And you can. He died on the cross to forgive your sins so you could have a relationship with him. It's been forever with him in eternity. So we ask him, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I've gone my own way. I know you came to this earth. You lived a perfect life. You died to pay the penalty for my sin, my death. Will you forgive me? Make me your child, and you will. Man, if you got questions about that, you've been thinking about that, you're not sure about something I said this morning, I would love to talk to you after the service today. I would love to do that. Please stop by, and, and let's talk more on that, on that topic. You know, as we talk about death, I, I sometimes get questions as a pastor on kind of a more practical level of cremation and burial and, and how should we think about these things as Christians. And I think it's important to point out that throughout the Bible, burial is almost entirely presented as the preferable option over cremation. That, that's the biblical norm. Now, cre cremation, I don't think, is in a sin, isn't a sin. It is in the Bible. It's rare but it, it is there, 1 Samuel 31 is the first cremation I know of. If you know of another one, let me know. Uh, but but it's, it's listed there. So I don't think the question is, is this, is it sin? No, I don't think it is. The question isn't, could God reassemble cremated remains? Certainly he could. He spoke the universe into existence out of nothing, and some people died 3,500 years ago and will you know, be reassembled. So I don't think that's the question. I don't even think it's a question of cost, to be honest. And I know that that's often the, the, the kind of the leading thought, well, it's, it's cheaper to go this way. And, and some will face real financial challenges. And I think it's appropriate to say, I would like to be buried, and I don't know if our family can afford that, to talk to your church in the Benevolence Fund so that cost isn't an issue there. I do think on the cost side, some would be well-served to have less exorbitant funerals at the same time. But some should also be willing to spend a little bit because there's value in burial. I think the question, I said all the things the question wasn't. I never said what the question was. Maybe you were wishing I would get there, and now I will. The question is this. How do we treat the body as God does, especially at death? See, God says it's not merely a shell. Like, your body is not just an outer shell for the real you. You're a body and a soul. There's a unity there. Your body will be eternal. As Jesus 
was raised bodily, so we will be raised bodily. So in a very real sense, our bodies are permanent. So how we treat our body matters. This is why churches for centuries would have a building and a plot of land for a burial ground. To try and think biblically about how we honor the body through life and death. Maybe, maybe I've piqued your interest there, and then there's more than we can say in this short time. I did get a couple of articles on burial and cremation from a, a biblical worldview and what that means. I, I put those at the table in the back, uh, right behind the stone wall. So maybe you want to grab one of those or, or have a further conversation. I'd be happy to engage there as well. Uh, but I think there's an underdeveloped part of our theology that's the theology of the body. To minimize the body in, in ways that are, are not necessarily helpful. All right, well, let's take a look back at verse 2 as we continue remembering our death from Genesis 23. Here's what we read. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. As we read that of her death and Abraham's subsequent response, we remember that as Christians, we do have joy. We're called to a life of joy. But it's also right for us to mourn and to weep. Ecclesiastes 3, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, Time to dance. 1 Thessalonians 4, we grieve, yes, but not as those who have no hope. So it's right for us to grieve. It's right for us to mourn. I think sometimes we, we want to bypass that, and so instead of having a funeral, we'll only have a celebration of life. So it's a slight change there, but it doesn't always have to be happy. I can have joy as I grieve. And your weeping, your weeping alongside your friends, it dignifies their suffering. Even Jesus wept. I see you. I love you. You matter. What you're going through is really hard. And maybe the only right response right now is for me to weep alongside you and to hug you. Your grieving honors their groaning in a sin-cursed world that's filled with death. And your hope-filled mourning, it affirms that there's a better day coming when there will be no more tears and no more mourning and death will be no more. And we enter into that together. And as we grieve together, it's important that we together collectively remind ourselves that our death is not the end of the promises of God. Sometimes it feels that way. But this tomb, purchased here in Genesis 23, in a way it is a mark of death where Sarah would be buried. Many would even see it as a mark of defeat. But as we track the storyline of Scripture, this tomb begins to indicate something different. The promises of God being longer than our life. Life is short. The promises of God are long, so we live for something we can't see. This tomb becomes the burial site later for Abraham, for the next generation, for Isaac, for Leah, for Rebecca, 
one day for Joseph. In a sense, there's a very real way where Sarah's death opens a pathway for God's promises to be fulfilled, that the land becomes inhabited by the Hebrews. For far too long, I think we've been trained to see life in about an 80-year cycle. It's something like 20 years of general prep, 40 years of working, 20 years of kicking back. And we sort of build the whole cycle around that. Like, how do I maximize that 80-year bit? And it's not entirely wrong to do that. Don't don't hear me quite say that. But part of being shaped by the Bible is to see in 500-year increments instead of 80-year increments. To see in 1,000-year increments instead of 80-year increments. Because my life is short, and God's promises are a lot longer than my life. I'm going to live in light of something I can't see so that long after I'm gone, God will continue to use what I've invested here to bring his promises to fulfillment. So to remember your death, then, is to consider how God may use your short life on this earth to accomplish his purposes in a much wider time frame. That then brings us to the third point where we start to look at what this means to live as a sojourner. Yes, remember the land that God's promised and Abraham took that step of faith to purchase. Remember your death. Your life is short, but don't just remember it, do something about it. Live as a sojourner. I know that word sojourner, it's not a super common word in our English language in the West now. If you're not sure what that means, simply think this. Temporary resident. I want you to call you as your pastor to live as a temporary resident on this earth. This is an absolutely foundational part of Christianity. To be a Christian is to be a sojourner, a temporary resident. Maybe you think of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. As a soldier, you know, I'm a temporary resident wherever I've been assigned. I'm not getting entangled in civilian pursuits because my master has called me to a specific mission. I won't be here long, so I'd better get going while I'm here. Or maybe you think of 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, also on the screen. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You're only here for a short time. God's called you to holiness. So yes, get going on the mission of telling others, 2 Timothy 2, but get going on the mission of being like Jesus. Striving for holiness. Sanctification, Hebrews 12, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. To live as a sojourner means maybe you you think on those verses, or maybe you just have a favorite hymn of the faith that helps you to think about this. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand. I cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I'm bound. I am bound for the promised land. You think through, I'm a temporary resident here. I'm looking forward to Canaan's fair and happy land in eternity. That's where my real possessions lie. So what does it mean then? How does Abraham show he's living as a sojourner? Well, I think there's a couple of ways he does. The first one was related to the cost of the land. Now, I mentioned before, I made a big deal that he bought the land, he didn't borrow the land. 
What I didn't talk about was the price of the land. And I think the price of the land shows how he was thinking as a sojourner at this time. I have to be honest with you. I read this passage a bunch this week, and I missed this about the first six times. And then I heard some, a commentator, or I read a commentator talk about it, and I saw it plain as day, and I kind of kicked myself. I didn't see it. So I want you to see this and not just kind of be, Pastor Justin said this. Look at verse 9. Here's what we read. Abraham says that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. That sounds a lot like to me he wants the cave and not the field. Right? I want to buy this cave. It's at the end of the field. You know how to get there. I'm buying the cave. I'm not buying the whole field. Seems to be what's going on. And I think what happens is this guy Ephron, this Hittite dude, says, oh, there's a market for my cave. Let's pork barrel this bad boy, and I can encompass some more in there, and I can charge him a little more money. Look at verse 11. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. And then we come down to verse 17, and you sort of see a summation of the whole thing. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham. So I think this thing started costing Abraham more than he initially thought it would. I'm just thinking this cave would do. Nope, you have to get the cave and the field and all the trees and the surrounding area. And Abraham's saying, this is worth it because God has promised this land to us and it's going to cost me more than I anticipated but it's okay, because I know God is always good on his word. And we don't exactly know if the price was a good price or not, but I do think we have good reason to think he maybe got kind of price gouged a little bit, even beyond the pork barreling piece. Here's why. He bought the thing for 400 shekels of silver, is what we're told. A thousand years later, David would buy the whole temple site for 50 shekels. And Jeremiah bought a field in Jeremiah 32, and it cost him 17 shekels. So, like, I don't know how inflation worked back then. Uh, and different kinds of shekels, this and that. Like, I don't know how all that works. But it does seem like this thing ended up costing Abraham a lot more than it originally was going to. And in a sense, Abraham says, it doesn't matter the cost, this is worth it. Or in more contemporary language, what the missionary Jim Elliott said, maybe you've heard it, he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I got 40 years on this earth, 60, 80, maybe 100. I can't keep them, but I can give them for something that I'll never lose. That's what Abraham said. That's how he lived as a sojourner. Friends, to live as a sojourner for us, it then means we change how we think about our financing, finances. Yes, investing in God's kingdom might be expensive. It sure was for Abraham, but it's worth it. And I mean, I don't know what vacation looked like for him. Like, don't know how they did it back then. He had less money available for his pleasures to go buy stuff he wanted. But he said, it's worth it. And Park said, I want to commend you in this regard. When I look out, I see a church marked by generosity. I see the grace of God in your life here moving you to regular generosity, saying we're going to live as sojourners, as temporary residents here. But I also know that if on the whole, God has marked this church by generosity, 
for a long time. There's likely some of you here who aren't living as temporary residents in the area of your finances. And I want to call you to see Abraham's example and live in light of what you cannot see. It's hard to say Jesus is better than money when you're so enamored by money and what it can get you. So hear what's here. Take it to heart. Repent of idolizing wealth and invest in the kingdom of God. There was one of our longtime members passed away a couple months ago and wanted to continue investing in eternity even in his death and left an estate gift so that even in his death he could continue to invest there. I see, I see evidence of grace all over the place in this way. But, but living as a sojourner is far more than your money. Right, Abraham's living with his eyes to the future. As they approached their time of death, he could have gone back home where he came from, this land called Ur, U-R, Ur of the Chaldeans, the, the place. But he doesn't go back there. He says, no, we're going to plant roots here. We're going to say my identity, my decisions are defined by where I'm going, not by where I came from. It impacts his, his time his energy, he's putting down roots, investing in, the, in God's kingdom, not in his own things that he wants to do. It's, Hebrews 11 speaks to this. It's, it's on the screen. L listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Our decisions are being driven by where we're going, not where we came from. I wonder how many of you would have neighbors or friends or co-workers that would look at your life and say, surely he must be living, she must be living for some future reality she cannot see. Because there's absolutely no explanation for how you are spending your time, how you're spending your energy, how you're raising your kids, how you choose to commit to love the brothers and sisters at Parkside. The only reason you would do that is if your eyes were fixed on a future reality you can't see. Or would they say, yeah, you kind of look like the rest of us with a little religious pixie dust sprinkled in on Sunday. We must live as temporary residents, as sojourners. There's one more thing I want to point out to you. I said this a second ago, I'm going to come back to it. Living as a sojourner means that I recognize that death isn't the end of the promises of God. In fact, it's actually just the beginning of them. To see this, I want you to turn over in your Bibles. So we're in Genesis 23. I'd like you to turn over to chapter 50. The very end of the book of Genesis. It's not going to be on the screen. Once you get in Genesis 50, here's what you're going to see. A confidence instilled throughout the generations that life is short, God's promises are long. So Joseph instructs his descendants to live in light of what they can't see because they are, he is confident that God will act. Let's look at verse 24, Genesis 50. Here's what it says. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land and to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. 
see what that means to live as a sojourner? If I'm thinking generationally, I'm not going to be here very long. I'm going to tell somebody else, God will visit you. He promised this. He's going to bring it to pass. Here's how I want you to act. Here's how I want you to live. It gives you a humble confidence that God is on the move. It's like in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know when they hear that Aslan is on the move? And then all of a sudden there's confidence in all these little animals running around. They're weak little things. The beavers can't do a whole lot besides build dams. But Aslan's on the move. With confidence. We're bold. We go forward. Not because we're that strong, but because Aslan's on the move. He's coming. Guys, God is on the move. Always keeps his promises. He's coming back. He's going to do exactly what he said. We're only here for a short time. Life is short. His promises are long. So we live in light of what we can't see. Let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful, joyful that you are on the move, that you always keep your promises, that although our life is short, your promises are long, you will do what you've said, you will fulfill your word, and you will strengthen us to live for a future eternity that we cannot yet see, but one day will. We ask this morning, as we ponder your word, as we think over it, that by your grace, you would help us to see what obedience looks like, what it looks like to live as a temporary resident on this earth. Give us grace, courage to act on that, to take the steps of obedience you're calling us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.